Good morning. Uh, I'm the I'm the third string today. Dave Dave um, Brown is is um, in uh, in meetings this weekend and next weekend in Washington D.C. And uh, Sean Sullivan was uh, option two, and Sean's also traveling with business and wasn't able to fill in. So this is what we got. We're going to do something different this week. We're not going to carry on with 2 Samuel because, as I understand, Dave's almost done with 2 Samuel. I just want to try to jump in and begin leading that series to a close when he's been teaching it for the last 17 months or something like that. So, so I wanted to just let him come back and pick up and finish that. So we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to, today, we're going to step in between Exodus or Genesis and Exodus. That was a little easier for me because I was doing an overview of Genesis last week and Exodus this week. And uh, so that fit. And there's things that I can't do and do in the main service that we can just spend a little bit of time unpacking in here, I thought. And I, I was very interested in it. I hope, hope there's something in for you as well. This morning we're going to talk about a, um, a forgotten little brother, a spoiled princess, an abandoned baby, and an insecure king. And how all of those tie together in between Genesis and Exodus. Okay, the next week, when we go back to Genesis again, Genesis chapter 12, one of the high points in the Bible, I call it a high point in the Bible because from there you can see all the way to the end. And from there you get a view of everything that's happening from that point on in the Bible. There's three particular promises in Genesis 12 that I'm going to suggest explain the rest of the Old Testament, particularly the historical books, promise number one. Promise number two, particularly the prophets and the Gospels. And then promise number two, particularly the New Testament era with the epistles, Paul's letters, and so forth, where we're living in today and where that's going. So all of that, that mountaintop view from Genesis 12, that'll be next week, okay? Figure what I can do a Bible book like Genesis on a Sunday, I can do the whole Bible in one session of this class. Okay, that's our aim. Uh, yeah. We're laughing. Yeah? All right, we'll see. So, today, uh, I wanted to begin, um, like I said, a forgotten brother. A forgotten brother, who else? A spoiled princess. And an abandoned baby. Oh, that's an easy one. You get that one, right? And an insecure king. Okay. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the end of the book of Genesis. But before we do that, who would like to open in prayer? We just in prayer. Spend our time in God's word to the Lord. Who will pray? Come on. I heard somebody in here pray. So, okay, Bob. Bob and Bob this morning. Father, it is indeed a privilege to uh, meet again with the, the brothers and sisters to uh, gather around your word to hear from you. We, we thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we ask you to move all cares aside that we hear strictly from you exactly what you have for us. We ask your blessing on this time in class and on the service to follow. May it all be to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The uh, one thing about the Bible, the Bible occurs in history. Really, the Bible occurs in a, in a genuine history, things that are actually going on. And uh, sometimes, from our perspective, we don't know the history, we don't know the setting, and we read the story and it's just a little flat. Because we don't get the, 
contour of what's happening, and actually how there's some parallel or some similarity, there's some continuity would be a good word, between times like that and times like this. Our present experience isn't so weird after all, in comparison. God has always worked and moved in the midst of history. God is God in real time, okay? So I want you to turn to the last chapter in the book of Exodus. Last chapter in Exodus. What chapter is that? Oh, sorry, Genesis. Genesis, yes, Exodus 40. Right, I said, yeah. Genesis 50. Good for you. Yeah. Keep me honest, keep me honest. It's still early in the morning. Genesis chapter 50. Jacob has died. Now, Jacob dies. What happens to Jacob's brothers? What do Jacob's brothers think once Jacob dies? Jacob's sons. Did I say Jacob's brothers? Yeah. Ah, I should have got that cup of coffee. <laughs> Jacob's sons. He has 12 sons. One of them is named Joseph, and then there's those others. Okay? And a lot of these last chapters of Genesis have focused on Joseph and the bringing in of the others. And Joseph brings the other brothers to Egypt and provides for them as well as his father. But now his father's dead. And what are his brothers afraid of? Now dad's not around to protect him. Now Joseph can do what he wants. Now that dad's not going to know. He held off while dad was alive. But now he's going to get us. And so the scheming continues. Verse 15 of Genesis 50. Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead. They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did? So he sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. Quote, this is what Jacob said, apparently. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Now, first of all, did Jacob really say that? No. How do you know that? <laughs> you don't really know that, do you? <laughs> but it doesn't say if Jacob said that or not. What it says is his brother said Jacob said that. I'm with you. I don't think. I don't think Jacob really said that. I don't think the brothers ever told him of their sins against him. I don't think Joseph ever told him of their sins against him. I, I think they kept that little family secret a secret. Which has its own problems, doesn't it? Because now, it's been there all this time and it reemerges. And it reemerges with more deceit and more deception, driven by fear. Okay? And Joseph wept. Why did Joseph weep? Why did Joseph weep? Maybe because he thought the lie it was. Yeah, yeah, and that his brothers don't, don't feel safe. Don't feel safe. They, they haven't rested in Joseph's forgiveness. They haven't rested in that. They haven't trusted it. They haven't believed it. I wonder if it's not like that with our father. It's not like that when we still don't rest in, receive the forgiveness that God indeed has given us. Joseph wept. 
His brothers that came, they threw themselves down before, and we're your slaves, they said. He doesn't want them to be his slaves. He wants them to be his brothers. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He doesn't let them off the hook. What they did was wrong. And yet, God would use that for good. God will work his good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid, I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stays in Egypt along with his family, lived 110 years. 110 years was supposed to be a perfect life in Egypt. In the Egyptian mindset, apparently, that's a perfect life. That was 110, that was perfect. Older than that, and you're just too old, you know. So anybody 110? Oh, good, I haven't offended anybody then. Okay. Um, now... Joseph's getting older. He's, he's 110. So I'm about to die. Verse 24. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whenever you see that phrase, whenever you see that, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are talking about the faithfulness of God. God's uh, the, the certainty of God keeping his promises always in view whenever God is introduced as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a phrase that occurs a lot. It always refers back to the promise made to Abraham that was handed down to Isaac, that was handed down to Jacob, and Jacob didn't deserve it, but it's given to him anyway because God is faithful. God's going to keep his word. That's the promise. Genesis 12, that we're going to talk about next week, so I won't do any more of that now. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, saying, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. And so, Joseph died at the age of 110, they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, waiting, looking for that hope. Now, what happens next? Well, let me give you a, um, an overview of history-wise. Oh, let's try another one. No? What happened? Did we do it? No, it's on. It was working. Not. Does it go to sleep ever? Yeah. Well, you, well, you don't yeah. use this one, though. Yeah. You know, this is terrible. Well, that was. It has gone to sleep. We're gonna we're gonna try. Bibles probably just say these are the names of the sons of Israel. 
Actually, in Hebrew, it's and these are the names. So now it's picking up. There's some sort of transition going on. But that and, it's a consecutive. It's a carrying on the story. There's a particular Hebrew construction. It's called a vav consecutive. But it just tells you the story is continuing. And these are the names. It's like, the names of who? What? what? Oh, those sons of Joseph, which was what we were talking about in Genesis. So the story is continuing. Now, in 1876 B.C., not, not just not so long ago, you know, we're not talking Custer's last name, we're talking Joseph in Egypt, 1876 B.C., uh, J- J- Joseph around in that era is made prime minister of Egypt. And if the dates work out properly, there were seven years of plenty and everything is great. And then that pharaoh dies. And the next pharaoh is the pharaoh of the seven years of famine. And, uh, but Joseph keeps things together and everything's good and wonderful. And, and so Joseph, a non-Egyptian, is, is prime minister of Egypt. His family is welcomed in as guest of Pharaoh himself. And the, his family are not Egyptians. His family are Asiatics, the Egyptians would say. Uh, they were um, uh, people from the Middle East, from Lebanon or Canaan or anywhere up there. You know, across the Sinai Peninsula and up north, they were considered Asians, okay? So, Joseph and his family, they're Asians, they're Semitics. Well, there are plenty of other people who are Asians. And apparently, not long after Joseph's prime minister, somewhere between 1900 and 1786, uh, the Hyksos people arrive. And the Hyksos, you may know who the Hyksos are. Anybody? The Hickstones people. Yeah, they're the Hicks from up north. Yeah. yeah. Right here we call that Gecko. Yeah. <laughs> Careful now, Bob. Okay. The Hicks, uh, nobody know, really knows who the Hickstones are. So you're in good company with anthropologists and archaeologists all around the world. We're not really sure. We know that they were there. Sometimes they're even confused with the Hebrews because of the similarities. Best guess is they were perhaps Amorite peoples, or related to the Amorites. But they move into Egypt, and they they are they are also uh, uh, they are also a shepherding people. They're an agricultural people. They they move into Egypt as well. They're drawn as well. Egypt's doing fine. The rest of the world's had famine, and they're welcomed. Why would the Hyksos people be welcomed into Egypt? Egypt's, Egypt Egyptians like Egyptians. But all of a sudden, they're a little more friendly toward <coughs> Asiatic people, Middle Eastern people. Why would that be? Immigration reform. Immigration reform. <laughs> yeah, there was. But why was there immigration reform? Top line. Joseph. Joseph was good for us. Joseph blessed Egypt as well as the rest of the world. There's a new openness to these Asiatics. So Joseph being there causes a sea change, if you will, of attitude toward foreigners, Asiatics, people from the Middle East, it provides an opening where these Amorite people, maybe, are welcomed in. Well, they take the open door, and what do they do with it? They take over. From a period about 1700 to 1550 BC, the Hyksos, these foreign rulers, they're called foreign rulers, another word is the shepherd rulers. Uh, they ruled Egypt. They, they, were, they were of lighter skin than the Egyptians. They were foreigners, but they ruled for a, around 150 years. We don't know the exact dates of the start of it, but around 150 years. 
So they rule the Egyptians. Now the Egyptians aren't really crazy about Asiatics anymore. And a new dynasty begins. This is the beginning of probably what's called the 18th dynasty, dynasty around 1550 BC. They kick out these Hyksos people, whoever they are. Send them packing. Now the king who does this is, well, a third, the third king in the line of this new dynasty is Amenhotep I. Amenhotep I is the king who is mentioned in verse 8 of Exodus 1. A new king. This could refer to Amenhotep, or it could refer to his predecessors, including a guy named, I think his name is Amnes, or something like that, who actually was, was the king that drove out the Hyksos. So now Egyptians rule again. Now how do Egyptians, now that Egyptians are back in charge, Egyptians are ruling again, how do they feel about Asiatics? How do they feel about immigrants? They don't like them anymore, do they? They have been ruled by them for 150 years. They don't like them now. Okay? So there's another sea change. So Joseph opens the door to them, which causes them to be welcomed in, and that, in turn, causes um, foreign rulers, which now leads to a mindset in Egypt that doesn't like the Middle East people. How do they feel about Israelites now? They don't like them either. That's right. They don't like them either. The new king, who did not know Joseph, came to power in Egypt, verse 8. Verse 9, he says, Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they, the Israelites, will join our enemies and fight against us. Who are the enemies? Who are the enemies that the Israelites might join against and fight against? Join with and fight against the Egyptians. Those Hyksops. Those other foreign rulers. And is that a legitimate fear of the Egyptians? Yeah, they were ruled by him for 150 years. Sure, they're thinking that way. That makes a lot of sense. So, that's why. Why all of a sudden Joseph was so good? The Israelites just mind no business. They're farming there in the delta. They're looking after their sheep. You know, not causing any trouble. And why all of a sudden is Pharaoh so nervous about them? A new king arises who didn't know Joseph, who only knew the Hyksos, and he's looking after his own, his own lineage and his own dynasty. Okay, so there we have we have a new king emerges, a new dynasty, Amenhotep. He he reigns from about 1546 to 26. Um, uh, it's an increased nationalistic stand. And uh, let's see, do I have a uh, okay, Amenhotep. Amenhotep is interesting. He, he dies without an heir. If he dies without an heir, his brother becomes king. His brother becomes pharaoh. But his brother is not in the line. His brother is the brother rather than the son. Okay, so what's he do? Well, he, he uh, decides... He's not a, I forget exactly the relation. I don't even think he's a brother. Is he? You don't think he... Oh, I don't... You know, I think that's it. I think, that, I don't think it is that. He's a brother-in-law. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't remember that. So, what he does to strengthen his, his claim to the throne, he is a brother-in-law. That's why he's outside the bloodline. What he does to strengthen his, his claim to the throne, then, is he marries 
Amenhotep's sister. Let me back up, let me back up. He is the brother-in-law because he married Amenhotep's sister. That's why he's Pharaoh, because she's a woman. Sorry, but we're going to get to that in a bit, okay? So Tutmos becomes Pharaoh. He's the Pharaoh of the oppression. Verse 15. So Amenhotep is the new king that arises and has a new policy, but Tutmos takes a harder line. And in, in, in verse 15, you have the, um, the king says to the Hebrew midwives, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, you observe them. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives don't listen. And so then he takes it a step further. He says, any Egyptian who finds a, a boy Hebrew baby, toss him into the river. This is not just instructions to the midwives anymore. If you see a stroller going down the street, pushed by a... Israelite woman, check the stroller and see if it's a boy or a girl. If it's a boy, grab the baby out of the stroller, chuck him in the river. That's what's going on. So now the, the murder of the infanticide is not merely by midwives in the hospitals or by certain officials or soldiers. It's by the population at large. Can anybody think of Nazi Germany? where the population at large is co-opted into this evil called the Holocaust. Okay? There's Egypt. Tutmos the first. Do you want to meet him? Probably not. But there he is. Where'd he go? Goodness, I'm having trouble here. Would it help if we, if we turn the light off? Could you see those yeah. versions? Can you see them okay? Light off. How many want the light off? Light off. Okay, light off. So there's Tutmos, he's not a nice person. Okay, there we go. He's not a nice person, but he's got that definite pharaoh look. Uh, the, the middle picture, there's actually other Egyptian pictures that show the, uh, the driving out of the Hyksos, and uh, that this was the type of headdress that was worn, so that's kind of the warrior look there, where he's in his chariot and he's driving. By the way, the Hyksos, one of the reasons they took charge, they're the ones that introduced chariots into Egypt. Chariots and stronger bows. Some people say compound bows, some people just say bronze bows, but they're the ones that introduced chariots. Uh, chariots pulled by horses into Egypt, which the pharaohs, of course, caught on to. Okay. So that's how they that's how they take charge. Now there you have Tutmos. He's the pharaoh of the Exodus. Commands the Egyptians to throw their Hebrew babies. Now he's I mentioned he's a little insecure of his own lineage. Uh, he's a commoner. His 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 claim is 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 a little weak. He does have a daughter and he does have a son. Let's go a little more to his line. Okay, Tutmos. He marries the king's sister. He has a, a daughter with her called Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. This is a nice name. We'll call her Hatties, okay? And uh, Tutmos over here. Some, some historians, by the way, confuse Tutmos or one of the Tutmoses with Moses. There's actually an interesting reason for that. The names are similar, but there's another reason I'll show you in a minute. But, okay, so Tutmos also has a lesser wife. He has other wives. The, the pharaohs had one royal wife, and then they would have other wives. Um, and so Hatshepsut would be the, the offspring of the royal wife and she's in gold or yellow because that's the royal line there's a royal bloodline there going back to Amenhotep okay? that Tutmos doesn't have himself and when this other wife does not have 
So Tutmos II, who is his heir, who you can tell by Tutmos II, becomes Pharaoh. But he's not royal. He's not royal. So what's he do about that? He marries his half-sister. Apparently the Egyptians didn't have such um, mm -hmm. um, objections to those kinds of things. He marries Hatshepsut, and uh, that strengthens his claim on the throne because he's married to the royal princess. Okay? He also has another wife named Isis, but it's through Isis that Tutmos III is born. So Hatshepsut and Tutmos don't produce a male heir. Tutmos III is born, but he's out of the royal line. Steve, do you see the problem? Okay, so, well, let me introduce you to some of these people. Uh, Tutmos II actually doesn't live very long. Tutmos II, well, he lives, I mean, okay, but he... He dies before Tutmos III, his son, can reign. He's like three, four years old, something like that. I forget the exact age, but he's too young to rule. So his mother, who is a royal princess, rules in his place. Hatshepsut originally becomes queen regent just to hold the throne for her stepson, Tutmos III. But she's really good at it. She's so good at it that she just keeps the job. She, in fact, Hatshepsut is considered one of the most successful pharaohs of Egypt. Remember I told you we'd come back around to that for you ladies, okay? Okay? Pharaoh, the, uh, the daughter couldn't be pharaoh, but this princess pulls it off. She becomes pharaoh, pharaoh herself, and she rules as pharaoh for about 20 years. The son, Tutmos III, is her second they don't really reign equally. He's in charge of the army, but she's in charge. Okay? And uh, some historians for a while thought, well, he's pretty angry, he's pretty bitter, pretty frustrated about that, but not really. It doesn't seem that way. There's something they'll talk about. Toward the end, after she dies, she dies at age 50. She reigns for about 22 years. She dies at age 50. Last couple of years of her reign, however, were not so active because she has bone cancer. She dies of bone cancer, uh, a bone cancer and a, a badly abscessed tooth that brings infection. So she dies at age 50, and it's at that point that Tutmos III is the, is the pharaoh indeed, and he, he's, he's always been the military commander, he's a brilliant military commander, he's considered the Napoleon of Egypt. So he's a very strong and formidable foe. Okay, lots of conquering going on, lots of chariot forays up into the north and down into Nubia and all these places. And exciting times, and he always seems to win. He's a brilliant tactician. Toward the end of his reign, he has a son. His son is named Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II is going to be ruling after him. Let's see, do I have a... Do I have a oh, well, well here's, here's another picture. I have this picture of... There's Pharaoh herself, and there's, uh, there, there's Tutmos III, her assistant Pharaoh, so to speak, uh, in, in, in Egyptian's car Egyptian carvings. And then here's, here's Tutmos III. He's a pretty ominous looking fellow. He, he uh, reigns after her, and he's, like I said, the Napoleon of, uh, of Egypt. And, and then what happens next? Okay, Tutmos III is going to have... A son. Well, he has a son, and his son is going to reign after him. A couple of years before his death, he does something weird. Let me back up. He does something weird 
He goes back to all the public displays of all the wonderful things that Pharaoh herself, Queen Hattie, did. And he chisels them out of all of these diagrams. So there's Hatshepsut missing. They, they remove her from all these public places. But again, historians concluded that after a while, they thought first he's just an angry young man. He probably did this as soon as she died because she kept the throne from him. But no. Actually, he does it only when he's near death. And he's going to hand off the throne to his son. Now historians aren't so sure. Was it really Tutmos III dragging this? Or was it Amenhotep II, his son? The Pharaoh of the Exodus. This is the Pharaoh that Moses comes back to. This is the Pharaoh that Moses talks to. And who says, let my people go that they might worship me. And he says, no! Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's Amenhotep II. Named after big guy up there, Amenhotep III. But what's different about the first and the second? What's different? Ah, the royal line. Yeah. Yeah. So why is Tutmos trying to cause a public forgetting that Hatshepsut was so important? Because when he, she endorsed him, she held the throne for him, she endorsed him, co-ruled with him. But when he goes, will the throne go to his son as he wants, or will it go to somebody else? Okay, see the problem? We better, we better minimize Hattie if we want to strengthen Amenhotep II. Okay? Now what does that have to do? Well, here's Amenhotep II, just to make I, you can make any pharaoh look good, I think. There he is. I don't know what the balls are. They're, they're, yeah, anyway. There's Amenhotep. Nice mask. Here's where it gets interesting. Okay, here's the whole chart. 1526, Moses is born. Moses is rescued out of the Nile by a princess named Hatshepsut. Ah. Intriguing, huh? Mm -hmm. Moses is rescued by the one who would become Pharaoh herself. Okay? It, it, and, and I always thought about this, you know, she's a, she's a young woman, doesn't have a baby yet of her own, and wants one. No, no, she's somewhere between 6 and 12. She's, I want that baby! And she's the one that can get away with it. She's a spoiled child of the palace, and she can get away with it. And so that's why they need a, well, they need a wet nurse, because she can't take care of the baby. She wants a living doll to play with. And so the baby is saved on this little girl's wing. Okay? Isn't that amazing? And yet this little girl's whim who saves, who saves this baby who is Moses, she becomes Hatshepsut, who rules as, as Pharaoh. 1504, she rules as Pharaoh when Moses is what? Uh, 26 to 04. What is he? 22 years old. Moses is 22 years old and mom becomes Pharaoh. Well, foster mom. Okay? Wow. Okay, well, there's not, there's, there's not only that, there's, there's also this Tutmos II guy going on. And in 1482 B.C., Hatshepsut, after 22 years or so reigning, is going to die. 26 years? I lose the math. But just before 
A couple of years before her death is when Moses flees. Now Moses is raised in the palace. Moses is raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, take it further, Moses is raised by Pharaoh. Moses is in the household of Pharaoh herself. But Pharaoh herself is perhaps already sick. Pharaoh herself is, is um, her power is waning and Tutmos III's is strengthening. Okay? Now, as her power is waning and Tutmos III's is strengthening, who is his rival? Moses. Moses has not just been preserved alive off in some random palace by somebody with royal connections. Moses is right in the midst of the biggest power struggle going on in the world in that day. That's Moses. That's the environment in which this is playing out. And so now, yeah, Moses killed the Egyptian. Somebody in the royal family who happens to kill some Egyptian foreman, even if he's a higher official, official, big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because Tutmos can use that to eliminate a potential rival. That's why it's a big deal. That's why um, that's why in, 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 in um, Exodus chapter 2 Tutmos III is seeking in, in, in chapter 2 verse 15 when Pharaoh heard of it he tried to kill Moses for Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian there's, there's the fleeing and it's not just he's, he could get arrested because he murdered somebody Pharaoh himself is involved why is Pharaoh involved in a run of the mill murder case because Moses is the guy these are the events, you see, that are going on in the background. And this is where God is working. God sends his people to be preserved in Egypt. And they are warmly received. And then they are not so warmly entrapped. They are in bondage. And the, uh, they are, the, the Pharaoh seeks to continue to use them at the same time that he's eliminating the race by killing all the male children. And it's a fairly new development. We know when that development happens. We know that it, that, that it, that it, was, it was done by Tutmos, the pharaoh of the oppression, because it didn't seem to affect Aaron. It seems to be a decree that was happened within the three years between Aaron, when Aaron was born, and there aren't threats against male children at the time, to when, when, um, when Moses was born three years later. So it's, it's, a, it's a decree that is relevant to Tutmos I. So this is going on. The, the enemy is seeking to stamp out these people that God is going to preserve. Remember Joseph's, remember Joseph's confidence? Put my bones in a box. Hold on to them. And when God brings you out, bring me with you. And a dying man giving his burial instructions... That's faith. He can do nothing to accomplish that himself, but he is confident that what God has said, he's going to do. He's going to work it out in the midst of history, 
Joseph is not aware of all of the machinations that are going to occur. All of the things that are going to happen along the way that actually lead into lead into these um, um, things unraveling and how difficult it's going to be. But God is still going to lead them out. And he does it not just by some picking some random guy out of the desert. Think about Moses. Moses is 40 years in Egypt, raised in the household of Pharaoh herself. He's 40 years in the desert. God's perfect preparation. God's perfect preparation for a man who he's going to call to do two things. Go to Pharaoh's palace and confront him. And then lead the people out into the desert and to lead them in those desert for 40 years. Right? Perfect preparation. Did Moses see all that at the time? Probably not. In fact, when God calls Moses in chapter 3, what's Moses say? I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. Pick somebody else. Pick anybody else. Have you ever felt like that? You ever felt like that? He's like, you know, I'm, I'm really not eloquent. Why does he bring that up? Eloquence matters in the palace. We we think of it in terms of, you know, this Pharaoh's house, and just anybody can knock on the door, yeah, I want to talk to Pharaoh, you know, because I've got some issues going on. No! How can Moses get into Pharaoh? Why does Moses have access to the palace? He was raised in Hattie's house. He's somebody in Egypt. Now, it wasn't so easy to walk into Pharaoh's palace when it's Tutmos, the third on the throne. Because Tutmos sees him as a rival and also a rival to the sun. But the sun is already on the throne and he's named after this grand conqueror up there. So he's somebody militarily. Interesting point. What time we got here? Oh, okay. Interesting point. Amenhotep has significant military victories in his first three years or so before he meets Moses. After that, he's a pretty peaceful guy for the rest of his reign. He doesn't go and attack these people and conquer these people. There are some, there are some proclamations of pillars here and there that say wonderful, grandiose things that are obviously historically huge exaggerations, but there's no record of any military conquests after the first couple of years of his reign. Why would that be? No military. He got no chariots. That's right. He don't have any chariots left. What happened to the chariots? Yeah, lost those in the Red Sea. No chariots. Lost a, a significant part of his army. He didn't lose all of his army, but he lost a big attack force. He lost the big advantage that he would have over other people, which was the rapidly moving chariot force. They're done. They're gone. It's going to take some serious rebuilding. We don't even have the, 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 the same horses for the rebuilding. This is going to take some work. This is going to take some time. So he's, uh, he's pacified a little bit. The Bible is, is, is historic. One of the things I wanted to get into tying some of these events in with real people and faces out of the past and dynamics of history that are going on when things seem favorable towards God's people and when things seem less favorable to God's people. Sometimes we think in the midst of that, 
Where is God? You have that in the life of Joseph, don't you? A microcosm just in Joseph's life, which then plays out much broader in those 400 years. Okay? It seems like there's a time when God's favor is here. God's blessing is here. Look, we're doing what we're supposed to do, and God is blessing. There's no record of them doing what they're supposed to and not doing what they're supposed to in the midst of this. Really, the Hyksos brought it on. They're the ones that caused this new oppression, brought this new oppression. The world events around them, and yet God is not caught off guard. God had said in advance they're going to be oppressed, they're going to be in slavery. They're going to be in Egypt 400 years, I'm going to bring them out. All that came to pass. God is working in the midst of the historical situations his people find themselves in. Sometimes it might be a matter of, there might be consequences related to poor choices of ourselves or our society. But in the midst of the broken world, in the midst of the breakdown of society, the point out of this transition from Genesis into Exodus is that God is in charge. God is sovereign. He's working that promise to Abraham. He's going to see it through. The circumstances that disturb us. God's end is not a better life for them in Egypt. God's end is a better life for them out of Egypt. He even makes them uncomfortable where they are as he's moving them forward. And for me, the theme out of this was, was, was the, just the, the historical background of the real people, who Moses really was. God prepares him for the palace. God gives him entrance into a place that not just anybody could walk into. So, so, so Moses said, well, I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not practiced. I don't know the court approach. And not just anybody can walk in and address Pharaoh. God says, well, don't worry about that. But he has access because of who he is. And then he's going to lead the people out. He's going to lead them out into the desert. How's he going to do that? He's lived there. He's lived there for 40 years. One of the lines I like about about God and Moses in that interchange. Moses given all of the excuses. And at one point God says, Moses, what's that in your hand? Remember that? What's in your hand? He says, well, it's just a stick. It's a shepherd's staff. It's not a golden rod. It's not that fancy, crooked sort of thing that you see the pharaohs lay across their chest in their funeral pose. It's just a rod. He said, well, go ahead and just toss that down. And he tosses it down. I love this part. What happens next? It's a snake. And it's not just any old snake. The word is for a really big sort of a snake. It's a big snake. And Moses probably jumps back. Because Moses probably didn't like snakes. <laughs> and, and, and then he says, well, just reach out and grab it by the tail. <laughs> You're right. Is that how you catch snakes? Does anybody know how to catch snakes? Yeah. What do you do? Fork stick. Oh, you shoot them. That's how you catch a snake. Then you can pick them up any old way you want. Okay, back to the echo. You take a fork stick, right? And you and you, you you pinch it behind its head. And then you can grab the snake behind the head and you can pick them up. But what happens if you grab a snake by the tail? No. It turns back into a stamp. Oh. <laughs> Now, now, that's not what's supposed to happen. And so God says, Moses does. There's a little microcosm there of what needs to happen in this whole exchange, isn't it? 
what needs to happen in the whole exchange process, process is not about how well you can speak. It's not, it's, it's not about where you've been. It's about, I've called you. This is your thing. I've prepared you in ways that you don't even realize your purpose to go. And actually, Moses, you cast down what you've got in your hand, but I'm actually going to use that thing that's in your hand. What I put in your hand, Moses, that's what I'm going to use. That's how you will show them that I have sent you. Cast it down. And then Moses' faith comes into the picture when he says, and I'll pick it up by its tail. Its tail. Picks it up. There's faith. I don't think Moses realized it at the time. What he was setting himself up for. What he was demonstrating that I picked that up by the tail. I'm believing God. Picks it up by the tail. And it's a stick again. It's his staff again. Right? Yeah. There's Moses. Moses draws aside. All this happens in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, right? What was it about that bush that was so interesting? There's a bush. But it's on fire. Yeah, a bush on fire isn't a big deal. You see... You see bushes on fire in the bush now and again. That happens. But a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's on fire. It's, the flames are there, but it is not being destroyed. Somebody pointed out once that reminded them of Israel. That Israel was the bush. Here they are in Egypt. Here they are being oppressed. They, the bush is on fire. But it is not consumed. Why not? Yeah, God, what did God promise Abraham? Your descendants. I will multiply them. Now he, that promise goes from Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael, right? right? That promise goes from Isaac to Jacob, not Esau, right? And Jacob and all of his sons wind up in Egypt. Jacob and all of his sons wind up under the oppression of Pharaoh. Except for Moses, who ends up in Midian. If the oppression wins, God's promise is ended. There's a big drama going on. The contest is already started. Who started it? That's a trick question, isn't it? So God started it when he made the promise in the first place. Well, no, actually the contest goes back to the serpent back in the garden when the serpent initially intends to, to interrupt and to destroy God's plan and God's purpose. But in this little episode, if, you, if this was a TV series, you know, each episode has its own little plot as well. And in this episode, Pharaoh picks the fight. Tutmos up here picks the fight with the wrong person. Tutmos picks the fight with the wrong person. He says, I am going to use and abuse and end God says, you cannot do that. God allows evil to go, but only so far. God allows evil to go, but only to his stuff. Because he will keep his promise. A Messiah will be born, 
a deliverer will come. There will be a, a deliverer that will come out of Abraham's history. In his descendant, all the world will be blessed. And that's way bigger than Joseph. It has to happen. God is going to give that land to them out of Egypt so they cannot die in Egypt. You see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now when you hear through Exodus... As you read on further in the Old Testament, but Bethesda, when you hear Moses speak those lines <coughs> in Exodus, it's big. It's reminding them no matter the circumstance, God keeps his promise. God is engaged. God is going to work out the plan that he has begun. No matter what it looks like along the way, no matter how difficult, no matter how it looks like, all the odds and all the powers are against us along the way, God works. God will keep His promise. That's why that Abrahamic covenant I want to talk more about specifically next week. I want to trace that through the big moves all the way through the Bible. Because it's huge. God is going to keep that promise all the way to the end. And we'll see it all the way back to at the end of the book of Revelation. Any questions about the background of Moses and Pharaoh and what's going on there. Questions or observations? Well, I'm just curious, what, what was the age difference between like, the, the last Pharaoh and Moses? Amenhotep? Uh -huh. Well, well Amenhotep is born to Tutmos. Tutmos, I forget his, his, his birth date. In fact, I, don't, I couldn't find his birth date. I could only find his death. But, but in fact, his death is mentioned in Exodus. And it's when Pharaoh dies, that's when Moses returns from Midian. When this guy dies, and this guy comes along. So he would have been contemporary to Moses. Probably, probably a little younger, perhaps. Because Hatshepsut rules. She, she rescues Moses. Moses is born up here in 1526. She rules in 1504. He's too young, so maybe he's born in 1512, something like that. So he's younger than Moses. Probably doesn't protect Moses nearly as much as the fact that the Moses has had him. So yes, yeah, so Moses a little older than, than uh, him, so Moses, or, or rather, Tuckmos III. Moses a little older than him. So he's way old to this guy. This guy's a young and proud king. He's got a few victories under his belt. Who are you to mess with me? Who do you think you are wandering in from the desert, out of your exile? You were somebody sometime, but you're nobody now. And you say, I need to listen to the Lord. And he says in Exodus 5 verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Amen, Hotep is talking trash. He's talking smack to the king of the universe, to the creator of everything. He's talking smack to the one who holds his breath in his own hands. That's what's going on here. And God says, well, all right, well, let me introduce myself. And he does. So then you have the uh, plagues of Egypt that are going to demonstrate to Amenhotep, exactly who is this God of Egypt, or, or this, this God of Moses, this God of the Lord. Yahweh is his name, the I Am. Who is he that I should listen to him? 
God introduces himself. Yeah? What Egyptian records do we have in the plagues? Egyptian records of the plagues? Right. Oh. Why, why would they record that? They, they, they don't talk about the Red Sea thing either. Huh. There's not a, you know, a chariot count and budget request, you know, for a new wheel. No, none of that. <laughs> they only record it because they're positive yes. for image. Yeah, positive for the particular pharaoh who's in charge at the time. In fact, one of the things that uh, one of the things that III did, or maybe Amenhotep helping in this transition period when they're when they wiped out her memory. But remember, they didn't do it in the, in the private palace things. It wasn't personal. It was out in the public. They didn't want people to remember her and her line. One of the things they did is they would cover up pillars about uh, about Hatshepsut. They would cover them up with stone slabs and things. Which only served to preserve them. Perfectly pristine. <laughs> Some of the best kept, kept um, well, these, these decrees and artifacts are hers because they covered them up so nicely. <laughs> so when you uncover them again, there they are. Yeah? Sometimes said that Ramses was the person at the time yes. of Moses. And mm -hmm. did, did they have other names? No, no. Ramses II comes later. And where that comes from, well, one of the reasons that that's suggested is when the Israelites are building a city by slave labor, two of the cities that are mentioned are mentioned by the names. Let me find it again. Does anybody else? Oh, yes, here, verse, or verse 11 of chapter 1, Exodus 1. Exodus 1, 11. <laughs> They're working with slave labor, and they're in their um, uh, part of what they're doing is they're building these two cities, Pithon and Ramesses. And uh, so they say, oh, well, well, actually, the pharaoh Ramesses II was a great builder. He built lots of things, so that must be the one. He's building a city after himself. But two things could be happening. It could be Ramesses I that the city was named after. It could also be the city which later was named after Ramesses II. So that could be as well, either one of those. But the, the Exodus date, that's a good point. Turn to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 6. We've got time for this one. A little more Bible study, a little less history, a little more Bible study. When was the Exodus is the question, right? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Because the earlier date or the later date, if, it, if it's Ram disease II, is the... Uh, if Ramesses II is the pharaoh of the, of the Exodus, then you have a dating problem later on with the historical accuracy of the Bible. So 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, is it? Yeah. Gives a date. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign. So there we have a date. Given the, um, given the establishment of the temple, King Solomon rules um, beginning, I think it's 970 B.C. So his fourth year would be 966 B.C. Somebody's got a calculator on your phone. I know you have them. 966 plus 480. Nobody has a calculator on their phone? 1446 is the date of the Exodus. Go back to our chart here. 1447, Moses returns. 1550, Tukmos dies. There's a date we do have. Moses can return, and everything else fits. So 
So along those lines, um, when when did uh, Joseph go? Was, were they how long? How long according to this timeline? 1876 for Joseph to be prime minister, roughly. So the the time between then and and the Exodus was, you say, 400 years. Yes. Yes. So 480 years. Four hundred years. Hang on. What I'm trying to do is figure yep. out how many people might have been there. Oh. When Joseph's family came, that was what, 80? 70. 70, okay. So if you got 400 years, that's only 10 generations, say. I mean, was there really millions of people? I don't <laughs> the Lord really blessed us. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a chronology in, in um, there's a chronology that Stephen gives in Acts chapter seven.
But Joseph, even though he's a younger brother, his father takes a liking to him. Joseph's doing the office work. Joseph's coat of many colors was not a field coat. Joseph is kind of made an overseer. Go check up on your brothers how things are going in the field. But Joseph seems to be more of the family accounting. He knows the farm and business, but from the home office side of it, rather than the working the field side of it. That prepares him for his elevation, first of all, into Potiphar's household, and it also prepares him as prime minister, with God's wisdom, to effect this salvation through the bringing in of the resources, and then the dispersing them back out again, the salvation of not only Egypt, but the, but the rest of the world, the people that would come to Egypt who were affected by the famine as well. And Pharaoh is greatly enriched in the process. All the property winds up Pharaoh's. People, first of all, brought all their money to Pharaoh to buy the food. Then they sold their livestock to Pharaoh to buy the food. Then they sold their lands to buy the food and became sharecroppers, giving 20% of whatever they raised back to Pharaoh. And there's our tax structure today, 20%. Uh, no Pharaoh comments, please. Uh, sorry, I couldn't find again that reference, but there, it's, it's uh, if, you, if you go back to the dates here, 1876 to, to 46, uh, you come up with the 440 years. 440 years, and then you add the 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness, and that gives you the other 480, 480 from the temple, too. Yep? Exodus 12, 41. Thank you. Go ahead and read it. Lord, may you be honored and glorified this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. And all the believe said. Amen. Amen.